Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's like the music that I want to be making and that I want to be playing and that music is generally like it's upbeat and it's like fun and it's fast and it's fun to play on the guitar and fun to sing. It scratches all the itches that I want to scratch and then just lyrically it's like you get what you get. (laughs) Welcome back to Working. I'm your host June Thomas. And I'm your other host Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's always nice to see you, but today I am absolutely dying to know whose voice we heard at the top of the show. We heard the voice of Liz Stokes, who is the songwriter, guitarist, and lead singer of New Zealand's premier power pop band, The Beths. You'll also hear on this episode Jonathan Pierce, who is the band's lead guitarist. Now, they are not the full band, right? No, there's also a bassist and singer named Benjamin Sinclair and a drummer and singer named Tristan Deck. But Liz and John are sort of the ones in charge of the songwriting and the sound of the band. Got it. And why did you want to speak with them? Well, June, you may remember that way back when, in our New Year's resolution episode, I mentioned wanting to get into new music. Cameron, roll the tape. Isaac, you are up. What is your first goal for the year ahead? All right, so my big one here is I want to get back into listening to new music. Following up on that, I went and read a bunch of critics' top 10 lists, and the Beth's latest album, Expert in a Dying Field, was on a lot of those, including, I think, Carl Wilson, Slate's own Carl Wilson's. And I listened to the album while walking chilly one day, and I was just <laughs> immediately hooked. They are practicing rock songwriting uh, at a craft level way beyond most of their peers. And since this is a show devoted to craft and the creative process, I just really wanted to pick their brain about how they do it. No kidding. And I'm very impressed with your, uh, you know, sticking to those resolutions enough to actually follow through. I will be catching up very soon. I am really excited to hear this interview, but I believe that today there will be a very special, very special extra segment that is exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? So the Beths have become my daughter's favorite band this year. So when they agreed to come on, I pitched them on this idea of having my kid ask them a few questions. They were very open to it. Liz actually used to teach trumpet to children and stuff like that. So I thought they'd get a kick out of it. Um, And so our Slate Plus listeners will get to hear Iris, age eight, ask her favorite band some burning questions about their work. 
Adorable. What a treat. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you will hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, it is really easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you get to hear extra segments on this show and others such as The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Apple's podcast of the year, Slow Burn, which has a new season starting on May 31st, by the way. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Liz Stokes and Jonathan Pierce of The Beths. Liz Stokes and John Pierce, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your process right here on Working. Thanks for having us. Hey. I guess let's just like start at the very beginning of the songwriting process. Where do the songs begin for you? Do they begin with a, an idea, a, a melody that comes into your head while you're walking down the street, a riff? Or, you know, how, how does a song start? Is there a typical way? I feel like there used to be a typical cool way and it's kind of changed a little bit. Like mm. I, I used to write, well, I, I still write a lot. Like I always have a notebook and I'm always trying to like write just uh, like free association kind of stream of consciousness stuff. So I used to kind of like go through that and kind of like pull little bits that I thought were like good, like a good idea or a good or like funny. And then I would kind of like link them together or something like that. Mm. But then, like, sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes I'll have a riff first or a melody first, and then I'll go through the books and try and find, like, something that feels like it fits. Or sometimes everything kind of comes at the same time. Like, I'll be playing guitar and I'll have, like, a concept or an idea, and then the words kind of, like, come from there as well. It's hard to remember. It's like you finish a song and you're like, I don't know. I don't know how (laughs) I did it, and I don't think I can do it again, ever again. Oh, really? Do you have that at the end of each song? You're like, well, that's it. I'm now retiring from songwriting. Well, I feel like, I don't know. It's it's scary because it feels, it feels like it should be like a skill that you hone. And I know that it is because like, I feel like I've gotten better at it. But also when I haven't written a song in a while, I'm just like, it's it. Like I'm, mm. my career is over. I don't, I don't remember how to do it. You know, one thing that I love about your songs, particularly on the on the most recent album, I, I like all three of your albums, but I noticed this the most on the most recent one, is that there's often this like central image or kind of core idea that you're playing around with. Like in Knees Deep, right? It's like the, the jumping in the water as a metaphor for just like being a braver person in your life and in your relationships and stuff. Waiting in the... So, for example, with that song, did it, like, start with, ah, yes, I'm going to talk about jumping into the water as a way to explore interpersonal bravery? Or is that something that developed kind of as you revised it and as you thought about it and dwelled on it more? Can I remember? Because the Knee Sleep is a song that, like, it started as another song um, that I wrote in, like, 2018. And it, it was, like, an example of a song where I had very few of the lyrics are the same, but, like, the idea I liked. And so I had, like, a good idea but like a bad song, it was just kind of boring and like slow. <laughs> and it kind of, so I kind of like was like, oh, well, don't need that one. And then later on was like, okay, I'm going to write another song. And I, like, I feel like there's something to this idea. I feel, yeah, I feel like for me, there's a lot of songs that I like 
like I like story songs or like character mm-hmm. songs, and I like yeah, like ran- songs where like the lyrics are just like cool feeling words. But um, I just always tend to write different kinds of songs. Like I, I tend to write songs with like a a central idea. There'll be like a verse or a chorus, which will be the first part of the song that I'll I'll finish, and it feels like there's an idea there, and then it kind of branches out from there, and it just makes sense to me to kind of like have those connections. Like it would feel weird to me to kind of just ram kind of different ideas, even though that would work. I think and like you can have it a song that's like <laughs> pieces of of different kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. It, it just feels right to me to kind of like extrapolate from one idea and and build the song from there. You mentioned, you know, you're not, you, you tend, although you like these kinds of songs, you're not like telling a story in the, or you, it's not like a traditional narrative song, or it's not just like strings of language, you know, it tends to be organized around ideas and images. But do you think of yourself as kind of playing a character when you're writing a song? Or do you think of it as it's, it's like a form of you? Cause they don't always feel like it's, it's not like confessional songwriting either necessarily. A little bit like it's, it's all the songs come from. They feel like they start autobiographically, but they don't always finish that way. Mm-hmm. And they're usually in first person, always in first person, I think. And then sometimes it'll be like, I've written quite a few songs where I'm writing from the like perspective of like somebody that I know, like it's not necessarily, but somehow that still feels autobiographical because it's like, mm-hmm. I guess it's like empathy. You're like, right. this is what it must feel like. <laughs> and it feels kind of real. And then, but yes, I feel like it, this, I'm not sure where it's from, but like, like don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. I feel like sometimes it, it's it, it makes sense that a song is going to you can give a song some closure or something like that. Mm. Yeah, so, so there's like there's still some fiction in there, but it's I feel like it, it always comes from a a non a nonfiction place. <laughs> right, totally. I've also noticed there's like a few of the songs where you know, part of the central idea is this kind of ironic tension between the music and the lyrics. So for example, like not getting excited is an incredibly musically excited song. There's tons of tension and release. It's very fast. It's the opening number. It's a burst of energy. Or um, Silence is Golden is a song about how you want quiet and it's the loudest and most chaotic song on the album as far as I can tell. Do songs like that start with like, oh, right, I'm going to oppose these things or, you know, like uh, how does that irony develop in your songwriting process? Yeah, like with, with Silence is Golden, the like big loud riff came first and then the like phrase Silence is Golden kind of came out and I was like, oh, I think I know what this song is about now. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that to me just makes sense, though, because it's like it, it's about silence, but it's like embodying that feeling of like <laughs> being completely overwhelmed by kind of like sound. I feel like. There's like the music that I want to be making and that I want to be playing. And that music is generally like, it's upbeat and it's like fun and it's fast and it's fun to play on the guitar and fun to sing. It scratches all the itches that I want to scratch. And then just lyrically, it's like, you get what you get. <laughs> and, right. um, a lot of the stuff that I get is just, well, like that I feel okay singing is um, honest and it's me dealing with some stuff. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, they like, that's where the tension comes from. And it just makes sense to me. Like, I, I, I think I've just feel too self-conscious or like, maybe I feel less self-conscious more recently, but like for a long time felt self-conscious to be like, I'm going to write like a serious song and we're going to sing it in like a somber, serious way. 
and people will take it seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, maybe I just feel too, um, too self-conscious to, to commit in that way. Right. Although there are serious songs on the new album, like um, Your Side and Best Left and, and stuff like that, that have a certain kind of grounded, sincere thing to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dipping my toe in to feeling <laughs> like a, it's okay yeah. to be sincere. Right, right. So what form are the songs in when, when John comes into the process or when you share them with John? Like, John, do you hear them when the rest of the band hears them? Or do you get like, a, is it early on when it's chords and melody? Or, or when do you come into the process? About halfway through the podcast. <laughs> but it's cool. I know my role. I'm a passenger for part of this process in reality and in the podcast. <laughs> Liz basically puts a demo together, like a bedroom demo with some straight-in guitar and uh, maybe some backing vocals and stuff. And most of the time that demo has like two verses and two choruses, or two verses and three choruses, and uh, lacks a bridge, which is, you know, that's a whole subject of conversation. You can make a podcast about writing bridges. It's a, oh, totally. Uh, totally. It's so hard. It's a deep well. Let's do that. Let's make this the bridge podcast. Okay. There are, I'm sure there is a real podcast called the bridge podcast, but uh, what is it that's so challenging about bridges? Why does that come at the sort of towards the end of the songwriting process? Well, it's just because we were, I write in quite, like usually in quite a classical form. It's like, yeah, verse, verses and choruses, which is not necessarily have to write how you can have to write a song. Now. You can do anything you want, but um, I like doing that. And then it just feels like with the bridge, it's like you have to kind of like be brave enough to take it to like a, a slightly different place and it feels like, like it's got to be a, it's supposed to be like a, a contrasting little bit, right? Where it's like you go somewhere else and then you come back to the chorus or you come back to the to the final part of the song. And it's just like sometimes hard to know what the song wants, what it needs. And like it's so often like I feel like I've explored the idea like, to a certain degree. Uh, it's kind of like daunting to be like, and now I have to write an entirely different thing that like has never been part of the original like vision right. of the song. And I now I have to like do just like it's like feels like starting another song or something like you need a whole new section but it still has to relate in terms of the chord structure and the idea totally. and everything to this other thing yeah it doesn't ha- there's the things like it doesn't have to sometimes some songs just go to a completely different place and it's awesome like and i just um i think i i, I just like get overwhelmed or like by possibility you're like suddenly anything is on the table at <laughs> this section of the song and um because it doesn't have to be a bridge, right? It can be like an ins- uh, an instrumental section, or it can be a, a guitar solo. Often it is a guitar solo. I like I like guitar solos. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's just it's kind of neat. Something needs to happen at that point in the song. And sometimes, though, you know, it is you know, John, one of your your guitar solos, uh, which I noticed because I saw you all live recently. Often the guitar solo is reproduced fairly note perfect, li- not for every song, but fairly note perfect live as well. Or do you compose those? Do they come out of improvisation? Can you talk about how you approach the delicate art of the rad guitar solo? Yeah, there's a bit of both. If I'm really leaving it pretty open live, it's usually because it was one of the more improvised ones in the studio and it made sense thematically for it to be a bit more improvised or something like that. Like I, I am, um, I'm a happy man playing the same guitar solos uh, night after night because um, that's like part of my joy of learning guitar uh, was learning solos that were the solo, the, the thing that got played, you know, like, and in later life, you know, I've seen Queens of the Stone Age as an example that just pops straight into my mind. And Josh Homme, like they play, no one knows it's like, one of their biggest pop banger numbers 
and he plays the solo exactly like it's on the record. And not only does he play it, he slays it. He absolutely shreds. He's like more on top of the beat than ever. But you've heard it a million times before, so it doesn't sort of need to be so... Like, it doesn't need to be perfect, but it just needs to be not lazy, and he, mm-hmm. like, completely crushes that. And that just makes me really happy. Like, I love that. And, like, learning to play guitar, I there's iconic solos, right? And, like, imagine if you went to such and such a show and then you'd learnt the iconic guitar solo and then they fucked with it and played it and played it something <laughs> different. It's like, no, it's a bit of a shame. It's not really an improvisation. Yes, they're kind of compositions and... I like I kind of pride myself on finding little like isms inside of the inside of the solos on like finding something that is like a trait of the mechanism of the guitar or you know a trick like I I try to make things where if other guitarists learned them they would be like oh I see the trick mm-hmm. he's used an open string every time he plays that note or something like that and right. that's that lets him do this thing so whatever it might be, or the trick for this one is unison bends, where you bend one string up to match the note of another string you're playing. You know, that's like kind of a simple, more simple guitaristic-ism. My mood, every time I play a guitar solo, the mood I'm trying to capture is, hooray, it's the guitar solo. Right, and yes, I you're usually beaming during them, you know, on stage. You're yeah, usually yeah. like, and not in a like, I'm a rock god way, but just in a like, hey, this is really fun, this thing I'm doing. Yeah. Aren't we having fun? That's my one emotion, yeah. <laughs> um, and I also noticed live, one thing I was really fascinated by live is that even within a song, you two will switch off who's playing a melodic line and who's keeping rhythm on the chord sometimes. And I was interested in what happens in the songwriting process that that results in that. Liz actually writes quite a lot of the guitar parts, at least like the motivic ideas of them or something like that. And and then heaps of stuff that I play comes pretty much straight from the demo, maybe slightly embellished. And then when we record, like when we recorded Science is Golden, all of the main riff, that's Liz playing all of the guitars of the main riff. Because at that time, she was really good and accurate at playing that riff and I was really sloppy. (laughs) So we're kind of pragmatists about some of this stuff. You know, um, Liz has like a total guitar superpower of um, using the pick and skipping strings. And so playing on like the sixth string, skipping the fifth and playing the fourth, and then maybe going back to the fifth or something like that. And I, I'm not entirely sure where you've managed to develop this superpower. but I think it's because I used to play finger-picked. And then I had to learn how to play with the pick, but I was like, I would still work stuff out finger pick and be like, okay, now we got to play with the pick. Well, you've you know? clearly like done the time to actually work out how to play that with a pick. And that that's, uh, it's pretty common that Liz will have like faster downstrokes and more accurate alternate picking than me for until like several months worth of gigs when I caught up with her. So in the studio, it, it can ch- chop and change who's playing what. And then when we come to play it live, it's, Kind of like what makes sense for someone to play at that time. Liz might be singing something challenging, so she doesn't want to also play a melodic line. It might be sonically, it makes more sense to have like the quote-unquote lead guitar, like the the typically louder guitar part play the melodic line, so we swap it back or something like that. Mm. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Liz Stokes and Jonathan Pierce of The Beths.
This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at workingatslate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. As you can tell, we really, really love to hear your voices. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Liz Stokes and Jonathan Pierce of The Beths. Another key thing that I think really comes out live is, of course, the harmonies, the counterpoints, the backup vocals, which for folks who have only listened to The Beths uh, studio recordings, it is shocking how on point the live harmonies are. Because often, you know, you see a band that has like great harmonies on the album and then you see them live and you're like, oh, no, something has gone awry here uh and and uh the the opposite happens with you all and the and the the backup vocals are so much a part of the sound of the band i mean just starting even on you know early that early single whatever with those whatevers that start in unison and then split into harmony all the way through expert in a dying field where the vocals are doing a lot of really sophisticated stuff sometimes you're almost singing in a round with the rest of the band sometimes they're singing the part of the chorus while you're holding a note above it and they're singing the lyrics Obviously, that was always part of the brief and aesthetic of what the band was. But can you talk about how that's evolved and how the four of you work out the harmonies? Have you arranged all of that in advance before you, the band hears the song, Liz? Or is that something that gets worked out in the studio or what? Often I, let, I write what I think will be the, the harmony part as part of the demoing process. Um, to me, it just made sense because when I was in high school, I was in like a, a folk band and there was just three people and one person was a lead singer and the other two of us. I played guitar and someone else played double bass and it was like, it just like, it, it gives you another arrangement tool. It's like, it's like, oh, cool. We have another instrument that we can like layer up on each other or we can like be this. Uh, I like that. Like when you have harmonies, it's got, you can kind of have the, that inter- like question and answer thing of like, you have the main lead vocal and then you have this like cor- like the chorus and, and like a, a musical or something that, and they are like this, like one demonic voice that all <laughs> sings at the same time. Not demonic, but you know, like it, it, it feels that kind of interplay. That's something I really like as well. 
And and John, do you have perfect pitch or are you all just drilling that stuff constantly until you know it no. in your bones? Or like what what are your rehearsals yeah. like? Are they excruciatingly perfectionist or none of us have perfect pitch. We've got pretty good pitch over the years, but like like mine is the worst of the group just for tuning, as an example, you know, but I guess I you got uh, the high part. I've got ears for other things. I always take the high part because it's the easiest to hear. And because I'm control freak and I feel like the high part defines the chord and I want to be the one that makes the mistake or gets it right. <laughs> so uh, when we when we started the band, it was like kind of almost the conceit was that like we were all on second instruments apart from the drummer, who's just very good at drums. And then we all were like, we all have to sing. And none of us were like singers. We could all like, you know, like make noises with our mouths. But it's like, <laughs> we were like, let's all get good at singing by writing really hard singing parts and mm. having to sing them at the same time as playing things. Yeah. And we, lately we've been doing a lot of rehearsal where we just sing around an acoustic guitar to double practice the singing, you know, and that that's super valuable in improving all the, um, like the way we can, it's practical stuff, like making sure you can hear yourself really good in rehearsal. Like for the first several years we were rehearsing on tiny little PAs and, and sweaty band practice rooms and, I think it's hard to develop really tight harmonies in that sort of situation unless you're ultra talented. So we've worked on it from all angles, you know. But yeah, Beth's rehearsals are a thing. Like I think the rehearsal culture of bands is probably another subject for another pod. You know, that's another one. Bridges and rehearsal cultures. Our rehearsal culture is pretty perfectionist, but it's like we play the song once and then someone makes a joke and that turns into a yarn that we spin out for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then we're come around to like deciding we need to play the song again. <laughs> so those demos, they have, you've record overdubbed some vocals and is it just chords at that point or some melodies as well in the guitar? Usually it'll be like what my, what the main guitar part is, yeah, um, which like very rarely is just chords, but usually there's like, like a, if it's like a riff or like, mm -hmm. yeah. So it, cause it, it feels like that's the way a song gets like built. Right. And then Jono like kind of comes in and like, I don't know, writes like a whole extra part or like has to be quite creative. And like he's using his guitar problem solving brain to like <laughs> figure out like what needs to go where and um, adding melodies and adding lead lines and, and or, or adding like texture, like things like that. And then of course, obviously like bass and drums have to go into that too. Have you kind? do you have kind of in your head what, what you want those to sound like or, you know, are they sort of then finding their way around it the way that John is with his guitar work or. There's usually a bit of a vibe in the demo and like, because Liz is not just strumming chords, she's written in somewhat of a guitar part and it usually has the tempo, but what we've learned is it usually has the tempo, but about 10 BPM slower. So we just need to speed it up a little bit into like, band mode and then we basically know what it is surprisingly bass is quite a lot more open-ended than drums because it's such a melodic instrument or it can be played that way that i think there's a lot of scope on bass and there's always moments on drums where like they can really make a moment and that, that very rarely is that written by us that's just an opportunity that's picked up on and taken for a run by tristan but very often there's a pragmatism to drums as well. It's like this is a 4-4 beat at such and such tempo and 
because of the way the riff and the lyrics fall, the kick drum needs to be on one and three instead of one and the end of two, you know. Right. And uh, Or one and the end of four. And, like, those might be, like, the classic beats, and you just pick which one fits with what what else is happening and pretty much play that. That's how I view drums, which is quite reductive, and Tristan would get grumpy at me for saying that. But <laughs> um, they still have their moments, you know, the, the pre-chorus moment and out of sight, for instance, it's like open-ended and much enhanced by a little bit of a flourish on the drums. You know, one thing I, I noticed about your albums is they don't sound super studio-y, right? It's like you're not like putting a ton of post-production effects and each playing seven instruments and getting Jim O'Rourke to add a soundscape in the background or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you, it, it feels to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you're trying to preserve as live a feel as possible even though obviously that's through careful manufacture. Can you talk a bit about how you use the studio and how you kind of keep the energy up and capture that live-ish feeling while still having to do all the kind of meticulous stuff you have to do to record an album? Yeah. We sort of talk about it. I mean, obviously it's something I think about a huge amount because we, it is important to us to like for it to be representative and of of our composition, we want to compose for the instruments that we play. Playing live is such an important part of what we do. But it's also always been my naive belief and goal that if um, if it's recorded in such a way and performed in such a way that that simple approach can compete with other approaches and they can live side by side, you know. I don't mean to compete like to beat them, but, you know, we, we're big lovers of radio, right? And we we think um, we, we like that our music is on the radio and we want to do what we do, but we want it to sound such a way so that it can be played on the radio next to whatever someone else is doing. Mm-hmm. And someone else might have chosen to do way more layering and way more like quote-unquote studio sound or something like that. So... I think that's what I've been chasing as a producer for a really long time is like a way to capture and reproduce more or less a live band with the minimum of pressures on the musicians to change their mode. And I think what the result has come out to be is like, you you know, you could almost call it vague, but it's just like a, the sound doesn't really sound exactly like, anything because it's kind of just trying to sound like the best possible version of what we played i mean if other people are hearing things that i'm not they can tell me but i don't hear any really obvious like oh this is such and such a production style right for a long time it was hard to find like things to compare to just because the the like our songs are really dense and like fast and so there's not a lot of space like usually it's like there's not a lot of space between notes and then the, the guitars are all distorted and so they're like filling up kind of every every crevice but not in like a big washy kind of way it's like it's, everything's very tight and it's got to be punchy and the so riffs have got to be heard you've really got to like dig to find room in the mix for everything because there's just a, like a lot of space being filled yeah it's a shockingly technological process but i remind everyone that i can about this fact and um people have Somehow, no one has ever thought about it before. But rock and roll music is a really technological music. Yes, it does. It, it's not possible to do it acoustically. The drums are just too loud, you know. And 
that means the guitars have to be loud and they're all amplified and the distortion is a factor and you know distortion tends to happen from volume and then you can't hear the singer over the top of that so then we have microphones and PA systems and things like that and that's the bare minimum of technology required to make rock music happen let alone what you need in the studio you know it's a shockingly technological process to try and get a loud rock band sounding naturalistic as if it was an acoustic band or something like that which is like a trend right now like I don't think grunge was really trying to sound naturalistic but the stuff that's on the radio in our world we we might be played directly after a Phoebe Bridges song which definitely works acoustically it's an acoustic volume in general and um, there's an authenticity born out of naturalism to a Phoebe Bridges performance which we would sound like contrived next to if we weren't sounding like a naturalistic rock band or something like that this is what goes on in my head so then um that's how I have to make it but that's the that's what rock music kind of always is it's real technological I think that's like generally music styles kind of tend to progress on technological lines and we've like chosen a subset of musical technology that makes sense for us mm-hmm. I think acknowledging that and embracing it is part of what we do finally you know you're a band who I, I assume like a lot of bands you know live performance is a significant part of your lives and of course New Zealand your your home nation had amongst the strictest border controls during the early times of COVID which I imagine had to kind of impact what the band was and how it worked in some significant ways. Can you just talk about how the band evolved maybe, or responded to the challenges of trying to be a working band during the, that early time of the pandemic and what changes you feel like maybe it brought on after? Yeah, sure. So we were, we were recording our had finished recording our like difficult second album. (laughs) Um, and I handed it in on like March the 5th in 2020. And so, um, and at that point, we were we had a decision, like, once everything had locked down, it's like, do we d- delay the release of this album or do we put it out when we decided we were going to put it out in July, I think, and we decided to go ahead with it. And we made that decision with a, a dearth of information as well, right? We made it, like, sitting on a beach in New Zealand, wondering, like, what is this thing going to be? But then, like, we had it kind of, weird, weirdly, we had, like, maybe one of the best 2020s of, of any band in the world just because um, we managed the... New Zealand had the border closed and there was quite a hard lockdown and managed to like eliminate COVID from the country for most of 2020. And so we had, we did like a national 11 date tour of New Zealand, which is a lot of shows. Normally you only do like three or four because there's not many big cities. So we played a lot of small towns and stuff. Um, and we played a big show at the Auckland Town Hall, which is our biggest ever show. We got like a lot of press in New Zealand, I guess, because it was a, there was like not a lot going on. Kind we of played summer festivals, music. you know, there was a whole festival oh, yeah. season and There's stuff like that. Season, and, like, yeah. But we also did live streams and like tried to put an album out internationally at that time. And so we had to like try to find people and it felt pretty fraught at times. Like we weren't sure who was listening or if anyone was really listening. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of weird. So we got to play a bit in, in 2020, which was great. But then 2021 was extremely quiet and that was when we were recording the next album. Yeah, I don't know. It, it it was a weird time. We we were also like really lucky that in New Zealand we were able to get like like a wage subsidy. Like, so none of us was like, well, just I've got to switch careers right now. You know, like that was um, 
Well, we like... all kind of thought that for a second, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> everything was on the table. But um, I feel like that's an important point to make as well, just because that was what allowed us to kind of like keep going as a band and keep making stuff and keep up all that we would be able to tour again. Yeah. Um, internationally. Amazing. Liz, John, thank you so much for joining us here. I'm working to talk about your process. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Up next, Isaac and I will talk about harnessing the unconscious and how you prepare yourself to take on the work that is generated from collaborative feedback. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Isaac, I learned so much from that conversation. The specificity of your questions revealed that you are knowledgeable about the technicalities of rock and roll performance. Have you spent a lot of time playing in bands? I actually have not. I've always wanted to do more of it, but I haven't played in a band since uh, my high school band, Lincoln on Stilts. Shout out to Dave Hanlon if you're listening to this. (laughs) But, you know, I have a good layman's grasp on how music works. I have friends who are composers. I have friends who play in Uh bands. I will often, you know, look up a chord chart and play a song and sing it to myself on my ukulele. Um, You know, I should probably (laughs) insert a little special thanks here, actually. My friend Adam O'Fallon Price, who is a wonderful novelist, used to play with his band, called Mayflies USA, who are themselves kind of a power poppy band. And Mm. uh, I sent him the Beths to listen to and he got really into it. And so we would kind of pick (laughs) apart their songs and what they're doing a lot. And that really helped me to prep for this interview. Wow, that sounds great. I loved hearing Liz's explication of her songwriting technique, which often starts with stream of consciousness writing that she pulls an image or a line from, and then gradually that inchoate notion, which comes from a very loose part of the brain, evolves into something more structured and specifically a demo that she hands off to Jonathan, at which point he becomes involved and adds his skills. Like, that just fascinated me. And this might seem silly, but... I think because songwriting is often done well by very young people, it can seem slightly magical, you know, something you're either gifted at or you're not. And it sounded to me like Liz's process begins with magic, but then goes through rounds of revision that bring experience and technique and maybe even science into play. Like, what a journey. Yeah, I agree with you. But I will say that isn't initial magic of inspiration plus incredibly hard thoughtful work of revision how great art gets made whether you're a writer or a painter or whatever you know I often think that the technical craft stuff we learn as artists in whatever field we're in is most relevant in the revision stage that's actually when you're thinking about 
oh, I shouldn't use the passive voice or whatever, you know, or <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. impasto or I don't know what painters do. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, it's most useful when you're revising or when you aren't feeling inspired and need to yep. work yourself into the space where the spark catches and a fire starts. I think young people are particularly good at rock songwriting because they're often less inhibited about that initial creative spark. They don't know enough to be cynical about their work yet, you know, or they might not know enough to say this song kind of sounds like this other song by Paul McCartney, you know, which I think can really get in people's way. Us old fogies are trying to get back to that less inhibited place where we can be more open and just kind of go with whatever the impulse is and worry about refining it later. Yeah, and I think a lot of my, what I think is probably a romance about songwriting comes from this very cliched notion of like the black kind of art student's uh, sketchbook, you know, where, where the people have written out the lyrics to songs and maybe some some chord notation, you know, in, in their sort of, you know, teenage handwriting. And you see that years later, maybe on an album cover, I'm revealing my age right there. And it seems like it's just straight out of their head onto the page and then into your ears. And obviously, that's not how it works. We know that. But no, you still and- somehow... But that initial spark is important. You know, it's a funny thing. If you watch the documentary Get Back, Mm -hmm. there's the um, moment that went very viral online where Paul McCartney is just kind of strumming and he's trying to figure out what to do. And he's like humming a melody. And then all of a sudden the pieces get come together and the beginnings of the song Get Back just emerge. You know, people went crazy about that, but actually it's like if you've ever written a song or you talk to people who write songs, that's actually what songwriting often is. You're like fucking around on the instrument and suddenly you're like, oh, that sounds good. What's a word that would go like that? And the, yeah. it emerges like that. And in fact, a lot of writings like that, you pace around and then you jump onto your keyboard, you write a sentence and suddenly something comes out. So it is a miracle, but it's the kind of miracle that happens all the time all over the world. Yeah, and you got to put yourself in the position to for the miracle to happen, which is yeah. you know probably sitting at your desk or scribbling into that black sketchbook. Absolutely. I know it's a bad habit of mine to compare other artistic pursuits to the one I work in, but well, here we go again. <laughs> Hearing Liz talk about the resistance she sometimes feels when John responds to her demo, which is basically the first draft of the song. He will sometimes ask her to write something else to accommodate the bridge or a solo or to take a different approach that he thinks the song should have. And that's like when a nonfiction writer gets an edit back, right? You know, Liz knows John's suggestion will improve the work she's produced, but there's still a natural kind of pushback. It's basically kind of, oh, but it was finished. I was done. I imagine this happens to pretty much every creative person who who has any kind of feedback loop. So how do you deal with that resistance? It's temporary. It's not like you're, you know, you want to have a fight with your editor, but it has to be gotten through, right? So what do you do? You sound like someone who maybe just got an edit memo <laughs> back uh, on the manuscript of their forthcoming book about the history of lesbian culture through, you know, specific places and types of spaces that have been important to lesbian political organizing. I life. have no idea what you're talking about, Isaac. Mm, this is a purely hypothetical uh, question. <laughs> well, I think everyone is has a moment of immediate resistance when they get notes. It's completely natural. You shouldn't beat yourself up about it if you're listening yeah, to this. No. It's because sharing your work with anyone 
in even a finished form is an incredibly vulnerable and intimate act. Um, and that's even true if it's an editor, you know, at a newspaper that you've never worked with and you're just sending them a draft, which I did yesterday on a piece. And, you know, it's, it's anxiety producing. You're, you know, you're really opening yourself up there and then they're going to respond in John and Liz's case. That's a relationship that goes back to high school. They've been working together for a long time. You know, they trust each other a lot and they're still going to feel that way. You know, Ben Hyman, my editor at Bloomsbury, we're about to start working together on our third book you know i still feel like when i get notes from him there's a moment where i'm like oh i don't know that i want these um even though i know i trust him yeah when you know the person well and you have a trusting relationship you just have to hold on to them yeah yeah this is one piece of advice that i will say if you are getting notes from you know someone you don't have a long-standing relationship with is that you are also learning about them through this process. Yeah. It's yeah. not actually all about you. And <laughs> you're learning about their taste, where the two of you might differ, you know, yeah. and it's really important to think of their notes. Uh, a friend of mine has this good adage about editors that editors think they're the doctor, but they're the patient because Ooh. what they're actually doing is diagnosing. They're like, ow, my stomach hurts. Right. And so their solution to the problem may not be the correct one, but they may have stumbled upon a problem that needs some other fix. So it's okay to ask a lot of questions about the notes, real questions, not pushback questions, but real questions. It's okay to explain what you were trying to do and then say, obviously, I didn't do it. Do you think there's a better way to do this or do I need to be doing something else? Like get into that dialogue, particularly Mm -hmm. if it's someone you're going to have a longstanding creative relationship with like editing a book or being in a band um because otherwise i think you're going to find yourself in in some trouble if you're just like well i have to blindly take all these notes no you fucking don't talk to them about it and 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 you'll get better feedback as a result totally uh and i i'm very glad that i've never worked with an editor who like i just felt we were kind of speaking different languages we weren't hearing each other you know in either direction i've never had that but i Really, I think, Mike, you've given a lot of great wisdom there. But I think, you know, there just is this feeling, even when it's someone you trust, even when you agree with everything they say, where you're just like, oh, but I was finished. And you know you weren't. You know you weren't. You know there's a lot more work to do. But somehow it's just like you just have to get past that point and be like, okay, now we're in for another round. Let's roll our sleeves up, you know, whatever the cliche might be. But, yeah, it's going to be great. (laughs) I Loved how much music we heard in the interview. Thank you, Cameron. But naturally, we only heard very short snatches of the songs. Once listeners have finished this episode, if they're curious to hear more from the Beths, what one song, just one, (laughs) would you direct them to in order to get a sense of the band's style? The easiest thing is this. Go to their latest album, Expert in a Dying Field, play the first track, which has the same uh, title. I could go beat by beat through what it's doing at each moment that makes it like this sophisticated little pop masterpiece on a craft level, because every choice they make in that is exactly the right one down to like, when is the harmony going? Who is doing this? When is it switching from major to minor? But doing all of that makes it sound laborious when actually it's just a really fun (laughs) anthemic song you will really like it or if you don't like it this is not the band for you yeah yeah that's a great test well i need everybody to go and listen to that but before we go we gotta say thanks to a few people and also mention that if you enjoyed this show why not subscribe 
you can do it wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Liz Stokes and Jonathan Pierce of The Baths and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who is an expert in every field. Some additional thanks to YouTuber Marty Music for providing us with the lovely sound of the Unison Band. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with prolific and acclaimed mystery writer Ellen Hart, who's most famous for the Jane Lawless series of novels. Until then, get back to work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.